everyone, and welcome to episode three of Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latovsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And today I'm going to launch into a couple little plugs before we get going with our movies of the week, which are... Well, we're going to be covering another one of our favorite comfort-watching go-tos, which is the 1980 John Carpenter film The Fog. And then we're also going to cover the remake from 2005. Not comforting at all. And another one I threw in there because I thought it would be nice that has some tangential connections, which is the 1957 movie Zombies of Mortel. So before we get into all that, just a little plug for you all as we get closer into Halloween, um, which is that we have a Tee Public store. Um, you can find a link to it on the ATB website, atbpublishing.com. And we have all kinds of designs related to our favorite horror movies, some sci-fi, some television, including a few designs that were inspired by The Fog, which would be a great tie-in for this episode. And also, if you're just looking for something fun or a way to support us. And then the other little thing we have is the next book in our Outside In series is getting released on October 13th. Why don't you tell them a little bit about that one? Well, for those that don't know, the Outside In series of essay collections that we publish through ATB explore all of your favorite fictional worlds in a somewhat unique and eclectic way. They're run by our range editor, Dr. Robert Smith, and that's Smith question mark. And yes, the question mark is part of his name. And what Robert does is for every television show that an outside in volume covers, whether that's classic Doctor Who, modern Doctor Who, various Star Treks, Buffy or Angel, he assembles a team of writers, a very diverse group in every volume, and each writer tackles one episode, or in some cases, one multi-part story from that series. So for example, this latest volume on the X-Files the X-Files universe of shows, which we're covering in their entirety, is so sprawling. This is actually going to take two outside-in volumes to cover. This one covers seasons one to six of the X-Files, the first feature film, and also, what the hell, both old and new Kolchak the Night Stalker. And for every single episode or two or three-parter, a different writer tackles it and does an essay about it. And these are not just straightforward critical reviews. They're kind of insane. You might uh, read through an outside-in book and hit a crossword puzzle, or you might hit something visual, or you might read a play that's been written as like a sidestep or a sequel to an episode. The point is, all these people are gathered together to analyze and inspect why they love the show or why they find fault with certain things. It is a critical essay collection like no other, we're very proud of the series. Uh, it's given a lot of people their first time in print, and it also features a lot of big-name professionals who will pop in from time to time. So it's all-inclusive. And uh, so far, like I said, we've covered Doctor Who, we've covered Star Trek, Buffy and Angel, and this will be volume one of a two-part look at the entire X-Files expanded universe. You can find information on that and all our books at atbpublishing.com. One last bit of business before we jump into our main movie. Last time we covered them, and uh, you had mentioned the thing about how fascinating you find it that my mother and I hate ants, but both love them so much. I totally didn't think to mention that there are a couple other movies that maybe don't loom quite as large in my childhood, but that I also love for different reasons. Well, love may be too strong a word for one of them, but uh, that I have a lot of really enjoyed or have a lot of respect for. 
And uh, they're both also Ant movies, and I should have given them a shout-out, and maybe one day we'll actually cover at least one of them. And the one that I think we'd be likely to cover is Phase 4, which is a very atmospheric, uh, slow burn of a movie, and one of the creepiest movies I think I've ever seen. And it's about uh, ants that overnight, with no real explanation, become super intelligent and decide they're going to run the planet. It's an amazing piece of work. It used all real ants in the making of the film. So there's a lot of close-up photography of those ants. And yet, again, it doesn't bother me when I watch Phase 4. I don't know why. It's got some creepy stuff. Another quick shout-out to another ant movie from my childhood, and really directly from my childhood. In other words, a contemporary film. It's a 1977 movie, Empire of the Ants, which actually I didn't know when I was a kid that I was already watching a Bird Eye Gordon movie. This is late in his career, long after his 50s heyday. And it has Joan Collins and Robert Lansing. And uh, it also includes enlarged ants, but they are about half the size of the ants in them, and they were accomplished entirely with photographic trickery using real ants. And it's also kind of disturbing. And again, I loved it at the time. It doesn't matter with me, I have no idea. One last thing is that I can't believe I didn't think to mention how much I love the movie and everybody in it, including James Whitmore, and didn't think to mention that James Whitmore also turns up as the orangutan judge in the uh, court scene, the trial scene in Planet of the Apes. So um, just another little thing I wanted to mention and, and couldn't believe I'd forgotten. Dr. Zero, would you tell Bright Eyes to be quiet? So the first movie we're diving into today, diving, you see what I did? Diving. I saw that, yes. We're, we're going to get into the fog, or maybe try to stay out of the fog. Well, we're not, we're, we didn't descend from anyone on Antonio Bay, so I don't think it matters, or does it? We'll never know, really. I don't know, neither did half the people that the fog was poking at, so I don't... I don't know. It's, co- the, it's complicated. It's complicated. We'll get into it. <laughs> Um, for this one, I just want to throw in, I guess, a bit of a spoiler warning. Um, we haven't for the last two. They've been movies from the 50s and kind of feel like, you know, the 50s. And granted, you know, the 80s, they're still longer ago than I would like to think. But, you know, it's a little more recent. Maybe you haven't seen it. I don't know. If you haven't, we're going to talk about some major plot points. So if you want to take a pause, watch it come back or if you don't care about spoilers just keep listening away and we'll launch into it i think for anybody of a certain age that's a phrase i think i'm already starting to use a lot on this show the fog's one of those ones that sits in a particular time for me it's 1980 it was around the time we got our first real cable service also our first vcr so i was really starting to expand like the movies i was getting to see at home and certainly not movies i would necessarily have gone to see in the theater I don't really remember when I first saw The Fog, but given the timing, probably around the same time as I saw Halloween 2 and a lot of the other stuff that we talk about is like my childhood stuff. And the other thing I remember is that it was in this amazing time in the late 70s, early 80s, where so many of these movies got these really cool, very eerie, totally disconnected from the film teaser trailers that would usually run as TV spots where they just make stuff that maybe they didn't have footage yet, and they'd make a piece. And The Fog has some really great atmospheric TV and radio spots from the time, that, like the Alien teaser trailer, for instance, is something that if you saw it as a kid, you remembered. It always made me scared. Uh, talk about not being scared by things. The movie doesn't scare me, but some of the advertising <laughs> for these things. It is night. 
is cold. It is coming. For all those who can hear my voice, look into the darkness across the water. Look for the fog. John Carpenter's The Fog. What in the living hell is out there? John Carpenter's The Fog. Coming soon from Avco Embassy Pictures. And the teaser trail always sticks with me. And then just right out of the gate with this movie, if you grew up with this stuff, that Avco Embassy logo is something you never forget. And that initial plaintive piano with the Edgar Allan Poe quote, which like promises even a level of disturbing hard to explain but like that that quote about you know as all we see in dream which by the way as you mentioned t public before it's one of our designs you might find that it kind of suggests like a genuine like awareness of unreality of everything like are we all in a dream state it almost sounds matrixy and some of its implications and it seems to go far beyond the the smaller story that the fog winds up being Though ultimately, I think they do try to connect back into it in sort of our final lines of the movie and try to kind of come full circle to the nightmare dreamscape kind of situation. And that opening is just beautiful. It sets a mood in such a powerful way and then rolls right into John Houseman's speech as Macon basically giving us all the exposition in the first of what I'll say is one of my favorite things about this movie and I'm sure we talk about this a lot too when we talk about these all these films, is how difficult it is sometimes and how incapable even really good filmmakers sometimes are at incorporating important plot exposition into the unfolding of a story. It can be tricky. And unfortunately, very often what winds up happening is you have to just have a character say something. And the fog is not immune to this. Like there, for instance, there's the scene with her uh, with adrian barbeau stevie wayne who runs the lighthouse radio station at kb talking to dan the weatherman and it's like this clunky way they have to get some of it out like she's like well you know um, until i can find somebody else you know i'm the one that runs the entire thing so i gotta be here okay so we know she runs it we know she owns it she even like does this thing of talking to herself so we know she moved from chicago That's how a lot of this happens sometimes. You have to get a character to say something. And yet, this movie also does some beautiful exposition without relying on that. Making speech at the beginning is all atmosphere. It tells you right out of the gate that what John Carpenter and partner Deborah Hill wanted to do was do a movie that was an homage to all the ghost stories they remember growing up with. So what do you get at the very beginning before you even really get into plot? You get sitting around a campfire like you're one of the kids listening to Macon telling the ghost story. And it sets up the background, but it also sets up the atmosphere at the same time. Eleven fifty-five, Almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. One more story before 12. Just to keep us warm. As atmospheric as it is, I still, every time I watch it, have a lot of questions 
about what exactly the children's program is <laughs> that brings them to the beach at midnight and plonks them down in front of like a grisly old sailor with a pocket watch and then says, would you like to hear a ghost story, children? And like all their faces are like, oh no, oh no. Like, I don't know what I'm getting hit with. They're all wrapped in blankets. Although later Andy looks like he's really happy. Like it was fun. Well, he's a weird kid. He is a very weird kid. He's a kid. very weird kid yeah. in a good way. I mean, we like weird. Are you weird? Yes, I am. Yes, I am weird. You are weird. Yes. You're weird. Thank God. <laughs> so that's not a problem. But every time I watch it, I think, number one, he tells a great story. Like, yes. there are sometimes you hear a story in a movie and you're like, all right, all right. Like, move the exposition yeah. along. But it's a great story. It feels like he's fitting the story into those five minutes to midnight that he talks about. Absolutely. Where it's like he looks at the pocket watch, like, time for one more story. He wants to hit when midnight and like he the finishes clock. the story and you hear yeah. the church bell tolling for midnight and it's great he tells a great story did we not time it once we i know at least one year we actually timed it to put it on at 11:55 before april 21st we did and i think it hits like within a minute it's not quite right it's but it's close it's not exact but it's close yeah um, which isn't so, bad for a movie yeah I, I give them props for that i think they were trying to get it to feel as close as it can yeah you know it's not exact in that way but i still the exposition i really want is the one i never get which is what are these kids doing there <laughs> Like it's it's a boring community. I like, guess so. Is they it just, like adopt an old sailor day? I guess so. He's a lot better than the remake version. <laughs> so well, that. in this one he seems like he's somebody who's like a trusted member of the community, obviously. You bring him out to spook the kitties with mm -hmm. like a little ghost story and, you know, wink and a nod to the other adults of like, yeah, I'm going to scare the pants off your kids. Like, the part you're that, welcome. The part that always got me as a kid is that he's actually telling the kids that the dead people are under the water with their eyes open and staring. It's such a line. It's like, Jesus, you're telling that to kids. Yeah. <laughs> that would keep me up for the rest of the night. But Andy's fine. He's, he's fine. all right. The other kids are probably not. He's right. We never really see any other kids, I think, again in the whole movie. No, that's true. And like we said, this speech is beautiful because it, it sets up everything from the more abstract, this is going to be a ghost story and it's going to be about atmosphere. Sometimes, actually, it's going to be about atmosphere to the detriment of plot. I love the movie. I will watch it a million times more. But there's there's issues with it. There, It's not the most ironclad uh, plot structure but then again i feel like that was kind of never the point like the point was let's pay homage to all these ghost stories because another thing too is you do find out the story you hear at the beginning you get different shades of it later when we find out the truth of what this tragedy that elizabeth dane was it doesn't match entirely with everything Macon said, but that's because Macon's telling the campfire version of the elizabeth dane yeah that the legend is essentially that it was just uh a horrible mistake yeah and i mean maybe it's it's worth kind of laying out the the legend for the listeners here although obviously if you've seen it you know yep. but the basic idea is that a ship was meant to come ashore and a fog rolled in that night 
And instead of being drawn towards the light that was supposed to lead them to their docking point, they mistook a campfire on the shore for their docking light and crashed into the rocks and the ship broke apart and everyone on board was killed. And they're always looking for the campfire that led them astray. And that's what the ghosts are sort of about. But of course, we find out it wasn't an accident. It never is. It's not an accident at all. I mean, how often is it really an accident? And most of this comes through one of the many wonderful people in what is truly, I think, one of John Carpenter's finest ensembles collected in any of his movies. Uh, But one of them is Hal Holbrook as Father Malone who starts the movie drunk, which I always find interesting, too. He's a character that is utterly tormented when he finds out the truth, that this town is based on a conspiracy to commit murder and stealing the the money from these people. That short version again, as you find out, the crew of the Elizabeth Dane just wanted to settle near this area, but they were lepers, so the lovely townsfolk of Antonio Bay planned to murder them, take their gold, and build Antonio Bay, the town, with it, which they did. And continuing, by the way, a fine American tradition of building community on tragedy and murder. And Malone is one of many descendants of the people that made this plan. And his character is very much the kind of character you think, oh, okay, he's drunk because he's tormented by all this truth. But he doesn't find out the truth until within the movie. But he starts the movie already drunk. So what is he already tormented by there's even a point where some of our characters are going to meet with him on the day of the big centennial celebration to celebrate a hundred years since the founding of the town in a sea of blood and they go to see him they use some pretty archaic phrasing like do you think he's in his cups yeah janet lee as kathy williams who is again she's a horror icon obviously psycho This was one of the rare opportunities where she's paired with her daughter, kind of. They only share a scene at the end. They they meet up. Yeah, they meet. They really interact. They interact more in H2O for like a minute. But but, uh, I just think Janet Leigh's performance in this, again, but full disclosure, how much I love this movie. We'll watch it a million times. And yet, this is one of the ones I think I have more things I could say are problems. Janet Leigh's performance in this, I think, is generally pretty awful. She always sounds like she's talking at the same pitch with no emotional involvement in any of it. Her husband goes missing, presumed dead on the seagrass, and she just really doesn't seem to be that worked up about it. It sounds more like an inconvenience to her than the loss of a husband. I kind of read it slightly differently in that she has this persona of being the woman who has it all together. I mean, she's sort of the, I guess she's like city council organizer or something. For a while, I thought she was the mayor. And then I realized, no, no, because she talks about like getting something to the mayor, talking to the mayor. And I'm like, I don't even know what she's in charge of. But she's a boss lady. She's got an assistant who follows her everywhere, who uh, you may recognize from everything else that John Carpenter has ever done. Yeah, it's um, Nancy Loomis. Nancy Loomis, right. But yeah, she's Annie from Halloween. She's also Tom Atkins' ex-wife in in Halloween 3. But uh, she always plays the same character. Pretty much, She's always Annie, really. She's always just generally annoyed by the world. And in this, she's kind of like that, too. She's basically like the Aubrey Plaza of the 80s. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. 
a slightly right. sort of snarky, disaffected, over it. She has she has a moment in this. There's just a side thing. I didn't I didn't anticipate, by the way, spending this episode airing all my complaints about the fog but it seems like that's what's coming up so whatever why do you hate the fog i know i love it so much and yet one of my favorite little behind the scenes stories on reanimator which i don't know if we talked about when we did that back in doctor of the dead is jeffrey Combs sharing an audio commentary how he hated a line in the movie where he has to in a moment of panic and crisis reveal that there's still serum upstairs because the audience needs to know. So he has a scene where he says, he took everything, he took everything, except for what I have upstairs, which is a horribly clunky line that's not the way you'd say it. You wouldn't say it out loud necessarily. You wouldn't say it that way, and he had to get it out. There's a line like that in this, where Janet Lee and Nancy Lemus are in the car, and they're talking about how stuff happened last night, because we see all that poltergeist activity sort of a harbinger of the the pirate ghost zombies returning. Or are they ghost pirate zombies? Or are they zombie even pirates? Pirate? It's like we always call them pirate call ghost them pirates, zombies, but they're not. But it's just because they're kind of on they're sailors. like a, a piratey looking vessel. Yeah. But really they were just settlers. Yeah, they weren't pirates. But we say that. We could think. I mean, they do they do board a vessel like unannounced in a piratey way. Now they do, yeah. But did they ever do that in the past? Probably not. But anyway, there's a bit where they're talking about the stuff that happened the night before. And Janet Lee says, you know, the dog was barking. And what does that tell you? And Nancy Loomis suddenly does this thing about how the car alarms went off as I was drifting to sleep. And it's this long sentence that no human being would say. I heard the church bells at midnight as I started to drift off to sleep. And suddenly my car alarm went off for absolutely no reason. And she gets it out. And it doesn't sound good, but I give her so much credit for having to say what's probably the most awkwardly written sentence in the movie. And it's you know it's stuff like that. It, it's like we said before, you watch a movie enough, you start to look at all kind of things. And for me, it's it's little moments like that. It's like, wow, she's overcoming bad writing in that <laughs> one moment. And yet I love most of the way this is structured. I mean, for the most part, I think all of the exposition comes through fairly naturally. It's the kind of film where you, the audience, are getting a like a bigger picture than the characters themselves have. Sure. You're seeing what happens to a variety of different people, and you're able to kind of piece together that this is bigger than each individual experience. But they don't know that because they're only experiencing what they're experiencing. And it's typically either alone or in a pair. I mean, it's sort of a small group situation. And each sort of pairing or person eventually is sort of coming together in a way to like knit that story into something that's cohesive. And I'll throw in my favorite, I usually say every single time. So like a great example of how exposition can be a little bit clunky it can be handled well this movie generally handles it well and my all-time favorite and one of my favorite shots composed by any director to convey story with no words at all is the beautiful pan that carpenter does when it's one of my favorite sequences in the whole movie everything about it is beautiful the beach is uh is insanely beautiful i think that's point reyes in that scene where andy finds the gold coin that when the water washes over it turns into a piece of driftwood that says elizabeth dane on it and gives us one of our artifacts that will convey a little supernatural information 
The music in that, the cue in that sequence is beautiful. I, I definitely consider, by the way, Carpenter's score in this to be far superior to his Halloween music. It's like, to me, the pinnacle of what he does. In fact, in many ways, I think I, I find this movie even more of a favorite than Halloween. I love Halloween, but I think the fog in some ways stylistically is just so much more uh, refined in many ways. And the music is incredible. And as he runs back to the house, the sunlight washes over the house. It's gorgeous. And then as Andy is running back home, we get this pan shot that goes right to left from inside the house that shows us a series of photographs. And in that 30 seconds or so, you get the entire story of his mother, that they were that she was married, that the husband is presumably dead, that they worked at a radio station together. And as the pan settles on the left side and the door, here comes Andy. And it's just an amazing composition that says, here's everything you need to know about this mother and her son. And here's the son coming home. Now let's pick up the story again. And not a single line of dialogue has to be spoken and you get it. It's a master class. And it's all done in like a single sweeping shot because as it's panning across, you can see Andy running like down the yeah. beach and towards the house and like him getting bigger and then coming in that front door. Yeah, there's no cut. And it had to be timed perfectly directing a small child with a big piece of wood to like <laughs> run on sand and get in the front door exactly when you want him to, which is extraordinary. And Adrian Barbeau, I mean, of, of everybody in this, I mean, we've already mentioned a few, but it's an incredible ensemble. Jamie Lee Curtis returning from Halloween as the one character in, in the group that I think isn't really well served at all. She's kind of there just to be there as like Carpenter's good luck charm at this point. But she's really like a cipher of a character. We get like one scene where we find out she's a rich girl on the run, just trying to live a life. But she really doesn't have an arc or any resolution to anything. But Adrian Barbeau's character in many ways helps to shape our story. It's also interesting that, as you pointed out, she is entirely isolated in this movie. She only ever shares a scene with the actor playing her son. And only once. And that's it. The rest of the interaction is either with the zombies attacking her at the end. Or she's on or, the phone. Or she's on the phone. And the rest is her doing her incredibly insipid, over-the-top attempt at a sexy voice on the radio. <laughs> the radio voice is, uh, it's a bit much. It is. I, I have a lot of thoughts about this radio station. It's 12.43, and I've got four in a row for you right here on KAB. First of all, it's a small town, true, but radio waves do carry, and surely they have other choices when it comes to listening to the radio. In fact, surely they must, because it seems like she broadcasts like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Maybe that's my guess that she does it for 12 hours overnight. We also mentioned about how the prologue tries to hit the five minutes right. You noticed this time around we watched it that the clock on the wall when she shows up at the lighthouse to get started for the night really is advancing well to convey that it like starts around 5 30 and when it hits just before six is when she's going to start that she's got to go yeah. on the air and as the night progresses that clock on the wall progresses as well that's a lot of movies never get that right so that's pretty good it's 
kind of amazing actually that they even paid attention to it Mm -hmm. in the background because it's never even really in focus but it still doesn't change the fact that it is quite possibly the worst radio station anywhere i mean it's it's not good like if she's going for sultry then maybe you go with something that's like jazz or blues or something like that but instead it's like the music that would play over top of a silent movie while somebody does something goofy. Like, it's not... It sounds like the the music that would play in the waiting room in Purgatory, which might suggest another interpretation for this entire film. That everyone's already dead um, and now they're in Purgatory. Yeah, I mean, the thing is also, is like, there's a real-world aspect to this. Could they get the rights as the kind of size movie they were to play a lot of contemporary music at the time, like most movies today would do? Probably not. They probably didn't even think of that as as an option. But the result is, it's just the weirdest, lousiest radio station in film history. (laughs) And it's it's only on half a day. Who listens to this crap? And I love it. She's lined up songs to celebrate the 100th anniversary. And it's like, I would turn that off immediately and (laughs) put on my own choices. And and we did a little research into this, as many, many fans have done before. And I am now very proud to have on my computer a fan-assembled supercut uh, from original sources, apparently, of all the library music that plays. Because I want to recreate the KB experience. Oh, what a delightful evening I'm in for. And it's all from most of it. Not all of it, but most of it is from the Bruton Music Library, which is one of the many monumental libraries of music that can be licensed and used for film productions and other things like that, where they can pull music. Night of Living Dead is another example of a movie that pulls a lot of library music. What's interesting is we were just re-watching Halloween 3 for the millionth time. Of course. Another Tom Atkins extravaganza. We'll get to Tom soon. Don't worry. Oh, boy. What does Nick do exactly? Anyway, You figured boat mechanic. Anyway. I don't know. See, even the remake, as lousy as it is, they decided, well, we got to solve this, so let's make clear what Nick does. Yeah. Anyway, um, we were watching Halloween 3, and we're watching the scene where um, Marge Gutman is sitting in bed, and the thing misfires, and she's listening to this weird piece on the the radio, and suddenly both of us looked at each other and was like, that's from KAB, isn't it? And it was. Same exact piece as one of the pieces in The Fog, also Bruton Music Library. And that's when you proposed the thing that was one of the many things we've talked about on this and the previous show very often, where you blow my mind with theories <laughs> that changed forever my perception of a favorite film you were like does this imply perhaps that the fog and halloween 3 exist in the same universe because what other radio station would play that music except for kab and both of these towns both santa mira and antonio bay are meant to be on the california coast yeah northern california and then just for the hell of it as although as you pointed out in a world of fantasy this doesn't matter i just was curious I looked up that the fog uh, was shot around Point Reyes and Inverness and Bodega Bay, and uh, Halloween 3 was shot in Lolita, California. And I looked it up, and they're four hours apart. So it's unlikely in the real world that a little lighthouse station like KAB would be playing to uh, the town four hours away. But of course, in that world, maybe they're not four hours apart. I mean, that's a filming location. Yeah. It's not the movie universe. So that means... Which very clearly is that KAB is playing on the radio in Santa Mira, and they don't know any better 
than to turn it off because they're all robots. <laughs> That's right. Finally, she's found her audience. <laughs> Demonic robots plotting the murder of children for Halloween. But and first, a, And a centuries-old warlock. <laughs> That's right. But first, some great tunes have <laughs> lined up. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm thrilled with that idea. Why not? The Fog and Halloween 3, same world. And there just happens to be two guys in that world who look surprisingly like Tom Atkins. Which could create sort of an even crazier, deeper connectivity theory, which is these are all movies about Tom Atkins progressing through various levels of purgatory. And all of which where he just beds somebody randomly and... And then asks for personal information. Yeah, him. right. Right, exactly. <laughs> no need to know that in advance. No, no, but no, no. this movie does have a problem, and that's the absence of Tom Atkins' very impressive brush of a mustache. You in the past have suggested that you would like to see, in the same way that they do a lot of Blu-ray restorations, you would like to see a restoration in which they add a CGI mustache to every Tom Atkins scene in the fog. Yes. After all that Henry Cavill stuff that went on too about right? his mustache being removed, put one back on Tom Atkins to the fog. <laughs> it would only change the movie for the better. I think so. Yeah. What else do we love about the fog? I, I actually do have a note written down here that just says Tom Atkins appeal, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean... I myself, I love Tom Atkins. Yeah. He's a joy to watch on screen. I think he genuinely enjoys what he's doing I think when he's so. acting. And well, he's how hard is that? <laughs> ah, yeah, well. I mean, Halloween 3 gets to lay on top of Stacey Nelkin a lot. So it's like, ah, is it a job? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think I said at one point, we watched that. It's just like the big slab of beef that is Tom Atkins. <laughs> Moving over, poor Stacey Nelkin. Yeah, so I don't quite get it. It's like that in Halloween 3, too, where she's just, like, determined to throw herself at him, mm -hmm. though I have my own well, yeah, sub-theories yeah. for that. We go, covered that. Go listen to our, our old Doctor of the Dead episode on yeah. the Halloween movies. But the same thing in this one. He picks up a hitchhiker who's like, are you weird? And he's like, yes, yes, I am. And she's like, oh, good. And then, like, two seconds later, all of the windows in his car blow out. And then another 10 seconds later, they're naked in bed. Mm -hmm. And then he asks her name. It was the late 70s, man. <laughs> so it's like, I don't quite get it. I think it's just that he wanted to work with the actors he wanted to work with. Um, but I also do think it's one of the real miss. Well, there's a lot of missteps in the 2005 remake. Oh, yeah. But one of the key ones for me in terms of casting is making Nick Castle and Elizabeth, who's then meant to be a local Elizabeth Williams, mm -hmm. makes them like contemporaries in age and having a dating history and it's sort of interconnected. Yeah. And I kind of like that she just kind of drifts in to town in the midst of all this. Well, it's a randomness to it that, like I was saying earlier, does provide one of i think the movie's flaws which is in a sense jamie lee curtis's character is really like there's nothing there like again they try that one scene where she says well i was came from a lot of money never a chance to do it i want it's like in a in a in a movie the way we expect it today you would expect oh, okay this is setting up something where by the end of the film she will find her purpose or there will be a reason for her to move on or something 
There's no payoff to any of that. Or even you'll just see her hitchhiking her way out of town yeah. and like moving to the next one. There's there's no payoff to any of it. And and she doesn't really get to do much of anything except be the damsel in distress a few times. It really is a nothing part. But that's one of the things about it that that's... I'll save it until we talk about the remake. But like, it's one of the things about the remake, one of the few times where I think, okay, I see why they decided maybe we can fix that. But the problem is they took the wrong lessons from the original and fixed things in a way that doesn't make anything any better. But I get the idea of, well, can we make her more intrinsically a part of the story and therefore make her character seem meaningful? Boy, did they take that in an entirely way too far direction. Way, way too far. Um, but I can understand. And we also talked about our ensemble. I did mention, by the way, Father Malone, uh, we mentioned Harbinger with Macon, I think I said, but like Father Malone actually already is, I think, more the sort of character that continues in our tradition so far in this series of Watson Pritchard and Dr. Medford of being the the fellow who's there to tell us you're all doomed. And he does that. And talking about good exposition, I mean, his exposition scene is fantastic as well. He's the reason we find out sort of the reality of the history of the town and the myth of its founding because he finds a journal in a wall that belonged to his I think great grandfather or grandfather or something who was also a priest, which I have questions about who this, like it's one of the things that I we made a note of in Zombie Mania back when we wrote that. I also talked to a good friend of mine, Lara Gillespie, whose father was a minister who knew a lot more about the various versions of Christianity than I will ever understand, or through you as well. Either of us. And and uh, everything to me, I had been told that if he's called Father, and based on the way that church appears, that theoretically he's Roman Catholic and therefore couldn't possibly, that couldn't work. So I right. don't really know what's going on with Father Malone. Maybe a listener can explain to us, is there some kind of, christianity or logical reason why that would make sense that he's the grandson or great-grandson whatever descendant of another father malone is that possible or does carpenter not know what he's doing there i don't know my my only thought if you're trying to make sense of it would be that maybe he had a family and had kids and then in the grand tradition of a lot of american television was widowed and then after becoming a widower decided to go into the the priesthood and therefore would have maybe already had kids and then those kids had kids and so on and one of their kids was like i'm gonna get in on that religion stuff but that's kind of the only way i can see it actually being connected via a bloodline so it's one of the things that doesn't quite make sense but the exposition is great because he finds the journal and is reading through it uh, I guess had already read through it himself and then is doing a, a dramatic reading of it yeah. while drunk. The man who's made a lot of his career doing one-man shows, Mark Twain. And that kind of gives us the actual history of Antonio Bay. Um, and also kind of shows us that everyone's used to him just being like a weird rambling drunk because the whole time they're just like can we can we get out of here i guess he's not given the benediction or whatever today can we just go i know you don't have this association but since hal holbrook has spent such a large part of his career being mark twain i just free associated over to jerry harden from the x-files 
playing Mark Twain in Star Trek The Next Generation, and I'm now just picturing Father Malone as Mark Twain with his hat the whole way through. And it's just really bad, you know. There's a, it's a lot of connective tissue there. It's a lot, there. Of, <laughs> lot of connective tissue there. <laughs> Haven't had no role in our actions tonight. That kind of thing. I just can't get it out of my head. <laughs> Mark Twain is Father <laughs> Malone in the fog. <laughs> We're honoring murderers. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> actually, that is an improvement. Okay, that, a CGI white suit onto Father Malone and give Atkins his mustache, and we've just created the special edition for Scream Factory. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll take our commission however you want to send it over to us. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't even know. Where do you go from there? I don't know. Father Malone is Mark Twain. We were talking about uh, Nick Castle, Tom Atkins' character, and Elizabeth, Jamie Lee Curtis's character. I do like one moment you referred to them as it just sounded like every 70s, early 80s detective <laughs> show I'd ever seen in my life where you referred to them as the crack team of sexy hitchhiker and the guy. And I thought that sounds like BJ and the bear, Jake and the fat man. Because basically as the action starts to pick up in the film, clearly something weird's going on. A fishing trawler has had all but one of its mm -hmm. occupants go missing. The other one looks like he's been dead underwater for weeks. You've got Stevie Wayne bringing her son's like piece of driftwood to the office with her as one does. And it like taps into her tape recorder and starts like giving a really creepy message. That scene always made me so uncomfortable and scared as a kid. We always talk about a thing that people always ask me what was scary to me. I say, a lot of these movies never scared me. That bit always scared me, that voice, the slow voice. Oof. Something wondrous with like an albatross around the neck, now more like a millstone, a plumbing stone by God. Got them all. It's kind of an improvement over the KAB uh, advertising <laughs> samples that she's listening to, though. She should just run that as a promo, then. <laughs> but, like, she's already had her own sort of strange happening. Yeah. And then she's watching the fog. The fog is glowing. Everything is just feeling very, like, weird and ominous. And as things pick up and start happening, she realizes there's something supernatural going on. Her buddy in the weather station there has been attacked by the fog. She's trying to get the sheriff on the phone and manages to get a phone call in and the sheriff or broadcast on the radio for the sheriff mm -hmm. to call her. And sheriff calls in and right as she's picking up, the fog cuts out the phone lines. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, I'm thinking if I were the sheriff and the lady at the lighthouse radio station said there is an emergency and you can't talk to her on the telephone, surely there's someone, a deputy perhaps, in a car you could send out to assist and find out what is the emergency exactly. But instead, he just goes back to the statue unveiling party, and then we get the crack team of Sexy Hitchhiker and the Guy. Who are listening to the radio and getting their direction from Stevie Wayne, which is an amazing interplay because they can't talk to her. 
she can't talk to them, not directly. Right. All they can do is listen to what she's telling them and act on it. And she has no way of knowing if they've actually acted on it. So she's directing them to the weather station to check on the weather guy. She's sending them to her house. Doesn't know if her son is safe. She doesn't know. And she stays in the lighthouse and is just sort of distraught and saying, I hope you're okay, Andy, but just understand I've got to stay here because she's already like cycling through the fact the phone lines are out. Mm -hmm. This is the only way I can talk to people. I've got the highest vantage point. I can see where the fog is. And like clearly the fog finally is like, we should probably take out that lighthouse because <laughs> she's really like messing with our plans here. Let me mention the fact that, again, one of the many things with this, it's more about the atmosphere and the mood it creates. And as you were just laying out some of the action, the movie is an interesting pacing to the movie. No matter how many times I watch it, the movie feels like it's taking a nice leisurely time. And then all of a sudden you hit a moment where the movie suddenly feels like you're on the downhill part of a roller coaster and then it's over. The The final act goes fast, but the rest of the movie is slow, including time to spend telling additional ghost stories, whether it's Makins to set things up or later in the movie, like sort of early in the movie, midway where Nick tells Elizabeth the story of his father and the coin, which is a great scene that gets a bit of a Mary Celeste kind of thing in there, but also shows that weird stuff's been happening around this area for a long time. Is it all related? We don't know. Was the coin thing related to the Elizabeth Dame? We don't know. But another issue here is Blake and his group are coming back to get revenge. Six must die. Basically, by the time we know that, they already have three. The attack on the seagrass takes care of half of their plan. <laughs> they spend the rest of the movie trying to get the other three. They're not really that good at revenge. It takes them a bit. They also don't seem to have consistent rules. Sometimes it seems like they have to knock. Do they have to knock? Do they have to be let in by the end of the night? The hell with it. We're just going to crash through this thing. We can't knock anymore. We still need three. Clock's ticking. And then, like, you know, there's the bit at the very end where they don't even get the six, but they show up again, so they leave completely. How do they leave completely? And then, like, somebody taps Blake on the shoulder and says, man, we didn't get the sixth one. Damn it! And then they have to roll <laughs> all the way back in and get the sixth one. Everybody yep. grab your chains. Come and, on. And like we said, would they attack or kill anyone who wasn't a descendant? We never see them actually do that. The attack on Stevie is interesting because does it mean she's related? Or as you point out, are they now deciding to do something that is strategic but not related to the six to get rid of the person who's providing information? Yeah, like one theory you'd had is maybe she's originally from that area. You think it's more likely the husband was. I do, because no one really seems to be that familiar with her and like the guys who've lived there their whole lives are out on the fishing boat are making a joke about you know i'd like to really like to meet her and one of them makes a joke like i ran into her at the grocery store once you would like to meet her and by the way one of the people on that boat besides one of them supposedly being janet lee's husband which no matter how many times i watch this i will never understand that relationship or how those two are married it's a small town no one ever leaves you pick what you can from what you got but the guy who doesn't think there's a fog bank out there is George Buck Flower that anybody who grew up watching movies in the 80s saw a million times. He's read The Bum and all the Back to the Future movies. And uh, read about George Buck Flower. I won't bother wasting time with it here right now. But uh, this man had an incredibly eclectic career as a character actor, largely as bums and ne'er-do-wells. You might also remember him in Carpenter's movies, by the way, as the bum 
who became a millionaire and they live by selling out and becoming one of the, the alien co-conspirators. So the plan, Blake's plan and the rules and the supernatural structure of it all is amorphous and strange, much like the fog itself, I guess. And maybe that makes sense. Here's the thing that I've always had the biggest question about, which is that in the journal, Malone says that when the founders led Blake and the crew to be killed, a strange fog rolled in and helped them by obscuring everything. And they called it heaven sent. So in other words, the fog a hundred years ago was instrumental in helping the settlers or the, the founders of Antonio Bay to murder Blake and his men. Without the fog, it wouldn't have been as easy. Now, all of a sudden, a century later, the fog is the medium by which Blake and his men are returning to get revenge. Did it switch sides? Who's working the fog? What is the fog? Was was the fog originally something that was, and if it wasn't, if it's a cursed thing, why did it then kill them and say, okay, I helped them to kill you, but here's the deal. I'm now going to give you a shot in a hundred years of going back and getting everything. So I don't know what the fog is. Well, I think they would think of the fog as heaven sent because they think that they're on the side of good, that they're right. doing the right thing, that these are are people who are in poor shape and and wouldn't make it anyway and would be a danger to the town. And therefore, they're going to protect the town by doing this and also allow it to have the funds it needs to start up. Right. So they think it's heaven sent because they think they're on the side of good. But in reality, maybe what it is is by putting that plan in motion, they actually made a pact with the devil and therefore it's coming due. That you get you get a hundred years of plenty, and then I'm going to come for your descendants. So like the people who actually committed the crime have no consequences whatsoever. They live out the rest of their lives. They think everything's great, and it's like two more generations down the line have to fight like the ghosts of their mistakes. Yeah, which I think is a little mean to their descendants. Yeah, they're not necessarily bad. None of these people in this movie people. are bad people. I mean, especially, like, what the heck did Mrs. Cobritz ever do to anybody? They're going to take out the kindly, like, elderly babysitter who sits every night with Stevie Wayne's kids so that she can go broadcast from the lighthouse? Yeah, she helps to enable that crappy radio station. It's, like, one of the most natural little motions where, like, the fog is surrounding their house and Andy's like, I want to see who it is. And Mrs. Cobritz like, just... It's like kind of like waving him back, like no, yeah. like and it's lovely. So I don't, I don't know what she ever did to anybody. No, terrible. But it it kind of feels more like they thought they were on the side of God, but really they made a deal with the devil. Uh, while talking about the fog itself, quick shout out to a couple things about that in terms of filmmaking, extraordinary effects work, all accomplished with a variation of practical approaches. Whether it was somebody pumping stuff into frame for a shot or doing photographic plates and compositing things. It's amazing. And also, kudos too to Dean Cundy, one of uh, Carpenter's regular collaborators, a lighting genius, who we now know started his career, thanks to Mystery Science Theater, we now know he started his career on Angel's Revenge, but don't hold that against him. <laughs> it's beautifully lit. And so is this. And a lot of this movie accomplishes things by just shining light through the fog, and it's amazing stuff. And again, we get to the remake. Oof. 
Sometimes practical is better and will age a lot better than I think practical CGI. is always better. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go out on a limb and say practical is always better. I was talking about inconsistencies. One thing that also always bothered me a little bit is the weirding, maybe not inconsistency, just randomness of them reanimating the corpse of the eyeless body on the seagrass to provide a message mid-movie, which feels odd and out of sync with other things they're doing, but largely only because that entire sequence was part of the reshoots they did to add a little bit of gore and extra horror to the movie when they realized that they had a movie that they thought was kind of flat and previews didn't work. So when you watch the sequence where it seems pretty obvious to stick Warlock, uh, is stalking Jamie Lee Curtis um, uh, while uh, Nick is talking to the doctor. Uh, that sequence was shot many months later, and you can kind of see it more with her hair than anything else. You can see it's different. And the but fact that she can't remember Nick's name. It really does sound like she calls him Jack. It's kind of like the Star Wars thing where everybody insists that Mark Hamill calls her Carrie at the end. But it's it really does seem that way. But it was shoehorned in, including some of the murders on the seagrass a couple other things were reshoots but it just feels odd and like they leave a three and that's the thing it's like like i said they got three right away and then the rest of the movie is like we're really gonna get that on the three wait for us we're coming there's three is there a place where there's three in one spot where we could take care of this because why is everything so far apart in this town it's the weatherman and the old lady and then it's like uh, one more it's tiring getting revenge and it's unfortunate that as beautiful as the movie is in almost every other respect visually the ending i do think suffers from a bit of cheesiness and effects when blake's eyes glow up red it's a good idea it looks good in that one scene where they're all standing in a group when he steps up to hal holbrook though it's a little too well lit for you to see it as anything other than rob botin in, in a suit with red eyes it's What's worse is when he grabs the cross and then he disappears by like the whole thing glowing cartoon yellow around him, which is odd because it also feels a bit like they repeat that in a couple of years when Connell Cochran vanishes at the end of Halloween 3. It's cheesy looking. It's not the best visual to end on. But again, it's not going to stop me from watching this a million times over, even even the stuff that doesn't work. You wanted to retitle it Fifty Shades of Plaid for all the shirts that are in this movie. If it's a plaid, they found it and they put it on somebody's back in this movie. It's also worth noting that the fog exists on a continuum of pop culture where it is both influenced by a lot of things that came before it and also has influenced a great many things that came after it. For example, we talked about the fact that they were inspired to tell a ghost story. It's also a great homage to a lot of old EC comic type stories. The brief glimpse we get of one of the pirate ghost zombies with the worms on his face looks very much like Lucio Fulci's zombies in Zombie 2, which would only have been the year before. But there are a couple other examples of that. Night of the Living Dead gets referenced in this with the hands coming through the stained glass windows of the church and you know laying siege to a small group of people at the end. Thing from Another World, one of John Carpenter's favorite films, Gets directly referenced here because Stevie Wayne does a speech at the end where she says, look for the fog, which is his version of keep watching the skies. And of course, in only a couple of years, he was going to get his chance to do the thing again. And in some respects, I would say make an even better film. Interestingly, this is something I came up with from Zombie Mania. A lot of sources claim that Carpenter was inspired by the Trollenberg terror, 
otherwise known as the crawling eye, for a lot of the things in this movie. In later years, whenever anybody mentions that to him, he says he doesn't know what they're talking about and doesn't remember that. So I don't know if that's true or not. But when he was younger, they used to mention that from time to time. I don't know why that is. But... I'm trying to, in my head, figure out a connection between well, there's the crawling a mist. eye and the there's fog. There's like a mist, I think. There's certain I elements of it. Yes, but I mean, the crawling eye really is a creature. It's true. So it's the fog is has a kind of personality in this in a sense at the end but it's still very much a medium for delivering blake and his people mm -hmm. not like the fog behaves in the next movie we'll talk about but again it's one of these movies that's hard to explain there's a great ensemble there's a great atmosphere it lets you sit in this world for a while until it ramps things up at the end the conclusion is not really quite as good as it could be but it still packs a punch. I was going to say, I don't know that I've ever really gotten to the end of a ghost story and felt like it was a zinger. Ghost stories just kind of fade out a little bit. And they try to stay a little ambiguous of was it real? Was it not? Could it happen again? Which is sort of a feeling you get in a lot of disaster movies, a lot of sort of especially natural disaster type movies. So... It's sort of an ambiguous ending is not something that's out of the ordinary. But I think because it's so atmospheric, you just hope that that will lead somewhere and really it just kind of, I mean, maybe appropriately enough, just kind of dissipates and leaves. In one moment, it vanished. But if this has been anything but a nightmare, and if we don't wake up to find ourselves safe in our beds... It could come again. Well, I know like many of these things, we could keep talking about the fog, and I'm sure there are things I'm forgetting. As we've just been discussing prior, I, I tend to overthink these kind of conversations about films we love so much and feel like, are we doing it justice or not? It's also the joy in that sometimes we'll watch a movie and we've seen it a million times, but you're going to notice things you haven't noticed before. Last night we watched Scream for like the millionth time and I decided while we watched I was gonna make a note of literally every food product I saw <laughs> that was like clearly product placement in the movie. So it's like and I could do a podcast just about that. Yeah. So it's like you're never gonna cover everything. Yeah. I mean like every week if we watch the fog over and over we do a different episode. So yeah. this is a time capsule. I know. I I get uh I get worked up about are we doing justice to something I care about a lot, so that's what anniversary episodes are for. Hey, there we go. But unfortunately, the time has come to move on. And one of the things we've been doing with Ghouls in the House is finding some things to pair. That means that in talking about The Fog, I do feel a sense of responsibility to cover possibly one of the worst horror remakes of all time. Certainly it's right up there. And that's The Fog from 2005, which until we watched it together, I had only ever seen one time in the theater when it first came out. 15 and I years had ago. never seen it. And we'll never see it again. <laughs> we never have to see that piece of garbage ever again. It is terrible. Probably one of the saddest things about it is it ends with a note that the film is dedicated in loving memory to Deborah Hill. Deborah Hill, as many fans know, died of cancer. She really had a terrible time in her last years in life. I think she'd lost both her legs by the end. It was terrible. And she had been aggressively working on 
setting up remakes and reboots for various properties that she and Carpenter had worked on. She was really the mastermind behind all the things they did together that were great and never got nearly the degree of credit that she should for shaping story on a lot of these things. As I think we already covered on the Halloween episode of Doctor of the Dead, she's responsible for those characters sounding authentic. She understands people and she understands how to write people. Yeah, and he and like he always said too, like, you know, he'd said about Halloween, it's like she wrote the girls and all the real world dialogue. He wrote the Doctor Loomis speeches. And unfortunately, this came out in October two thousand five. She had already died in March of two thousand five, but she never had to watch it. <laughs> I mean, it might sound awful, but... No, well, I mean, the thing is, she probably knew what they had. I mean, I I don't know how far along everything was at that point, but... It's it's just bad. What's happening? They killed them. Fall killed them. Get off the island. Why? Just go. Somebody out here? I mean, we're going to try not to focus on it for too long because i'm already having terrible flashbacks it's just how awful it it's is bad it's a it's a great lesson in rather put another way it's a great example of a remake that takes all the wrong lessons as i think i mentioned already mm-hmm. tries to fix things that it thinks are inherently wrong with the original but does so in a way that just chooses something else that's bad and on top of it gets everything else wrong the pacing is terrible the, re- the heavy reliance on awful, very quickly dated CGI for the fog, turning the fog into more of a character, is a terrible choice. It's one of many movies of that particular era, early 2000s, that seemed to be just so enamored with giving everything uh, like a mono or duotone color grade. Everything looks gray-green in this. The zombie ghost characters just look like Haunted Mansion. Everything looks like you're playing a game or on a ride. And didn't we mention also in the House on Haunted Hill remake how you said the sets look more like the sets you would expect to see like at an amusement park recreation of something? Yeah, like this one looks like you're walking through like a fog pop-up event at like King's Dominion. And you also said you hate that the fog has a noise. Oh my god. Yeah, the whole movie, every time the fog is coming through, it's all just, like, making that cliche, like, probably a pre-programmed button on the Casio for tortured soul noise. Versus, like, I remember that button. Like, every time the fog comes through. And I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. They tried to do a lot of th- I mean they tried to basically pick a lot of stuff in the original uh, the, the a lot of the beats are the same there are some actual lines of dialogue they're almost exact the character names they character keep names the same. and well, I have a respect for that because obviously we were both distressed by the fact that they didn't bother to keep anyone's character name in the house on haunted hill remake even though they were doing it with the participation of the castle family right so why not use the name? So here they do. And so, I mean, I guess that's my only tip of the hat is, is the fact that the character names are the same. I mean, Selma Blair is now Stevie Wayne. Uh, Selma Blair is an actress that I don't usually enjoy much of anything. In this, I'll say, you know, she might be good in some things, but in this, I think she has like negative appeal. She tries to do the Stevie Wayne thing. She just sounds angry. She sounds annoyed that she has to be there. Yes. Um, And it sounds like Selma Blair may have been annoyed she had to be there. And they very clearly make it so that everyone you meet 
is told to you, the audience, as having been descended from the founders, including Stevie Wayne. Right. Stevie Wayne and Nick Castle and Elizabeth are hitchhikers. Actually, Elizabeth Williams, who is also descended from the founders. And they have a new founding myth that's different, but the same, but also different. Yeah, in this remake, they act. it's still Blake and his people and still lepers. But in this one... The Antonio Bay found four of them. Now it's not six. And it's four of them actually uh, went out in a boat and burned everybody to death on the Elizabeth Dane and took all their stuff. So there's a lot of burning in this, too. Where every time the ghosts do somebody in, they burn them to death with horrible CGI burning. And, um, and also, so Elizabeth, she's the daughter of Kathy Williams. In other words, in the remake, the Elizabeth character played by Jamie Lee Curtis in the original, is now actually the daughter in the story of the character played by Janet Lee in the original. So it's a deliberate meta joke that, oh, the mother-daughter from the first film who weren't in the movie are now actually mother-daughter in the story, but they're not in the real world in this remake anyway. So who cares is what I'm saying. And there's also no real mention of her father, or the husband, because, I mean, in the original, he's one of the people who dies in the boat. And yeah. She's like, this time it's just like a sexy bikini nighttime party boat. And this time the seagrass is Nick's boat. It's Nick's boat that he takes out, tourists out fishing on Antonio Island. Yeah. Uh, on which Antonio Bay in is, Oregon. A, is a town. Yeah. Um, which I guess you're still Pacific. And Nick Northwest. has uh, a, the one black uh, resident of Antonio Bay is his friend. There was one single black resident in the original movie, Darrow Agus, whom some people might remember from the Friday's SNL knockoff. He's the the weather another one of the weathermen. Who gets like a two second scene that's like, well, my weather shift is over. See you tomorrow. And then leaves and he's fine. And he bucks the horror tradition by surviving in the fog. I mean. Spooner does okay in this too. Yeah. yeah. But he's accused of murder, so... <laughs> he's the only survivor of the boat massacre, and I guess, you know, naturally that makes him a murderer. Yeah. In the same way that I said, you know, all the exposition you get in the original as the audience then eventually sort of knits itself together into yeah. a finale, this movie just feels like a series of crappy vignettes. Yeah. None of them make any sense. They're all, like, scenes written... Because they wanted to do an effect or like they had an idea in mind for a kill or for something breaking or for some revelation. And they wrote a scene around it and then they just moved on and did it again for the next one. But none of it flows together. We also forgot to mention, by the way, in the role of Nick Castle, replacing big slabbo beef 80s icon Tom Atkins is none other than much younger and much more handsome and much less personality-possessing Tom Welling, who at this point was four years into working on Smallville. So this was a big deal. And Maggie Grace from Lost is Elizabeth. So there's like TV stars coming in to, or like cult TV icons coming in to do this. Both and... things I never watched, and so I didn't recognize either of them so i had like no connection to anyone who's in this i kept asking you am i supposed to know who yeah. this is and i'm like i don't know it doesn't really matter but basically no one really has any personality nobody is a character that you care about what happens to them none of the story makes sense 
The effects look absolutely awful. Remember the part where the piece of CGI glass just slowly like sails through Father Malone's body on another plane because the laptop guy didn't bother rendering it completely? What I do remember is the moment one of the display cases broke and the glass was floating in the air, I started yelling, the glass is going to go through him. (laughs) And then eventually it did. But like I thought all the glass would go through him. And instead, they're just like, you get one piece. (laughs) It's all we can finish. One piece. The music is terrible. It's basically non-existent. It's just like meaningless attempts at piano riffs. Graham Revel, by the way. Which is insane because actually Graham Revel does great work. Maybe he didn't have any time on this one. He did all of the incidental music for The Craft, which is very moody and like has that sort of eerie feel to it. And that was a few years prior to this that was what 96 97 was the craft and i love the music that he did for that and it's atmospheric it's eerie for this i don't know if they just gave him bad direction or he really didn't enjoy working with people he was working with or they weren't paying him enough for all of the above from the stories we've read nobody enjoyed working on this set It was directed by Rupert Wainwright, who came from the music video world and basically, quite literally, ended his career in film directing with this movie. Uh, Never directed another feature. And the man who wrote this, who in the extras, is just one of these wonderful, oh, the pretentious crap. We we, we watched the extras, by the way. Did we mention that? We watched the extras for you. These two men, the, the writer is Cooper Lane. Lane, L-A-Y-N-E, which you then discovered immediately left this business to become a realtor. Yeah, I mean, he's he's doing fine as doing a Beverly fine. Hills real estate agent selling like multi-million dollar mansions. And he's found his truer calling, I suppose, in that. He'd only written one other film before this, which was The Core in 2003, which is of that era, the tail end of the natural disaster type movies where you got to like rev up the earth's core or else the earth is going to stop rotating and all kinds of ridiculousness and but the stuff they spout in their interviews trying to sound like master filmmakers who are fixing the original it's i mean here's the thing yeah they crap on it yeah, yeah they they really dump on there and and the thing here's the thing the obvious reaction you tend to have when you love a movie is a remake. First of all, I never dismiss remakes out of hand, but I do agree that it is true. Most of the time, remakes are at best unnecessary. You know, you can revisit the original, it could still work, and at times can go really horribly awry like this. But it could have been different. I mean, let's face it, John Carpenter himself with The Thing created one of the greatest examples of a remake that is exceptional and in some ways much better even than the original. So it can work. But this is a, it's not just a bad remake. It's a bad movie. It's a terrible film. It doesn't look good. It doesn't tell a story well. One of the things we kept saying late as the movie progressed is how boring it was and how there was one point where I was actually starting to fall asleep. Like nothing happens in this movie. There's almost no actual events. Which is like the criticism you'll hear from some people about the original that like it didn't it wasn't critically reviewed as well as they were expecting it to be i think because a lot of people felt like oh it was a little too slow but like what we find is atmospheric in the original some people found as slow but this wasn't just slow it was just 
non-existent. And it's just so sleep-inducing and boring. And then late in the movie, evidently somebody decided, you know what we're missing? We're missing two car crashes. So you get two because we got to do something and let's crash a couple cars. That'll work. Sure, um, why not? And, our, and of course, the other thing is this movie does have the big change. The, the one moment where people making a remake decide, you know what? I came up with something that'll really make this thing. The big, huge twist change. The big change in this is that Blake had a wife and that he's driven to find that wife reincarnated in the body of Maggie Grace's Elizabeth Williams. In the flashbacks, we find out that she, along with all the others, died. The logic of this, as you pointed out, doesn't quite make sense because all the others come back as ghosts. Where is his wife? Why is she not back? She doesn't die in any different way to suggest why her ghost is missing, except, as you pointed out, could it be that somehow her ghost got like sucked up and trapped as the reincarnated Elizabeth, so he needs to get her back? But, but it's like a couple generations later. And she's a Williams now, who's one of the ones that killed them, but she wasn't connected to the Williamses originally his wife so why is and she... also she's the same i mean it's the same actress playing her in the flashback so clearly she also looks like her i told you when we were watching the movie and even before there's gonna be like the big thing in this that i really despised when i saw the movie in the theater yeah that big thing is the big revelation at the end where she just randomly and presumably dies but with no explanation for the mechanism elizabeth just suddenly becomes a spirit and literally spins with Blake kissing as they go off to eternity together. But I told you something was coming. And about halfway through the movie, I forget, maybe during a flashback, you turned to me and said, is this like a Dracula thing where she's a reincarnation of one on the boat who died? And I'm like, yep, <laughs> that's what's coming. Basically, my theory is that somebody involved with the project had a fantasy about a human lady making out with a ghost <laughs> and needed a vehicle for that but you can't just like start the movie with it you have to end the movie with it and then they just tried to figure out what they could shoehorn in to get to that one moment which by the way is like 10 moments because it lasts way too long it's like movie kissing is never that good anyway like Anytime. Oh my god, the shower sex scene in this movie. They make a derogatory joke about the way Nick and Elizabeth fell into bed in the first of fog and then proceed to have one of the dullest, smarmiest. I'm not sex convinced scenes. they did anything except help each other wash their backs. <laughs> Truly. That's it. Also, no one wears pants. I don't. I don't know. It's like a cold like seaside town in the off season i put some pants on that's all i'm saying but it's it's just creepy it's gross it's unnecessary and then she just disappears into the mist with them yeah and is gone that like maybe she was like never meant to be there it's like they I just, this I is what know. i say about get, taking the wrong lessons i mentioned how the elizabeth in the first film has no arc they were like, we're damn well going to give her an arc in this one. Yeah, but you gave her the wrong one. One that's awful. No one should be subjected to that arc. This is, however, an award-winning film. It won at least two awards the year it came out. Were they Razzies? Were they Razzies? 
It won the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards for Least Scary Horror Movie. And it won the Fangoria Chainsaw Award for Worst Film. So kudos to The Fog 2005. (laughs) And just don't watch it. No, don't watch this movie. Go watch the original Fog again. In fact, just act out your own remake of it. Film it with your phone. Hey, I do. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It'll, It'll be better. It wasn't a man. It was one of them. Now, just to wrap up the episode, uh, I decided uh, why not add another movie on the pile. I was actually looking at movies I had listed as connections back in Zombie Mania, and there are many reasons why this movie actually shares more plot-wise and thematically with a movie that borrowed from it, Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, Curse of the Black Pearl. But Zombies and Moritau is another classic zombie movie that sits in the middle of the voodoo era transition into the modern era. And given the fact that we've been so steeped in movies from Mystery Science Theater and just talked about beginning and the end, it was also interesting because this movie is a Sam Katzman-produced film. The guy did Giant Claw, a number of other things. The Werewolf, which is actually a very good werewolf movie. And uh, features Morris Ankrum, who is our general in beginning and the end, and he turns up in this. And Gene Roth, who's uh, usually playing a sheriff in things like Earth vs. the Spider or Attack of the Giant Leeches, he's in this. You hadn't seen this at all. I had not. And we thought, well, we're in the zone and we watch a lot of the 50s B to Z movies. It's probably closer to D or E. But but I thought, well, watch that because it also features zombie ghosts protecting a treasure or wanting to reclaim something or to find peace and not quite actively seeking revenge, but acting on anyone that tries to take their stuff. And but there are elements of it that are something Carpenter may very well have grown up with and thought, hey, you know, I'll I'll draw some things from this. I mean, this Zombies of Morchow very clearly is corpses. Like, mm-hmm. it's not it's not something that's, like, carried on the wind or, like, the mist or the rain or something. They're very clearly corpses of the sailors that look exactly like they did the day they died. They do not rot. They are just there. It's it's enjoyable. Like, it's an enjoyable movie to watch. It has some elements that you would get from, like, a heist movie because it's they're trying to bring in a team to get to the treasure. It kind of has the elements of like trapped in the house type movies because you know clearly it's all connected to this piece of land there's also a siege on the cabin on the boat that's very night of living dead mm-hmm. um like punching through the walls yeah and... the seaweed and the zombies in this the seafaring zombies that also walk underwater without and there's actually direct reference to the fact they don't wouldn't have to breathe fighting underwater would later influence oh a ton of movies from Creepshow to Shockwaves to Zombie Lake to Land of the Dead a lot of lot Zombie of, Two yeah Zombie Two and there are a couple other interesting things pop culture wise that I like to connect with this one is that the guy who directed this Ed Kahn also directed Invisible Invaders one of those key zombie films that's on the cusp of the transition into the modern era but this movie really is almost entirely anchored anchored see what it did there. Started and um, ended with the puns. With, uh, by the performance of Marjorie Eaton, who's the old lady who lives in the mansion there and is watching over her husband, who was one of the sailors, and the others. 
and hoping one day she'll get her chance to basically Gloria Stewart those diamonds into the water and give Release them all him. the peace yeah, that they deserve. Although I never understand that part because she talks about destroying the diamonds, but throwing them into the ocean doesn't destroy anything. So I don't know. But her performance is amazing. She's great. She has a wry smile through all the darkness. She is in control. She knows what she's doing. But what about you? They don't bother me. They seem to know I don't want their precious treasure. It was more than 50 years ago that I heard rumors that my husband was seen around here. And I came back to find out. Slowly, I pieced the story together. I built this house. You want to be with him? With your husband? This dead man? I came to help him return to dust. To find his eternal rest. But how? How can you do that? Cool woman again. She's not like pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. Like she tells them what they're in for. She pre-digs graves for the crew before they get there. <laughs> she knows that they can be held off by fire. And there's one scene that I think you will agree is one of her best moments where the guy is holding a gun on a zombie and she just walks into the room, knocks his gun down with her walking stick and has a torch and is just like, I got this. Don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> and she, she's just superb. And one of the things that's most interesting about her is, uh, and this was another sort of like minor mind-blowing moment for me, is that Marjorie Eaton, who plays the old lady here, has one of the most significant pop culture appearances to her credit that now you can technically no longer see because it has been erased by the filmmaker from history, unless you have early versions. Marjorie Eaton was the original emperor. In the one scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Vader speaks to the Emperor by remote, in the original cut of the film, we see an Emperor, all people out there that remember the movie the way it really was remember this, kind of looks like his eyes are weirdly extended and blinking out of sequence, and that's because they just kind of clutch together a thing. It's the voice, if I remember right, of uh, British actor Clive Revel, I believe, but the face was Marjorie Eaton in the robe with monkey eyes superimposed over the little makeup thing they did over her eyes. She's the emperor. You can't see that anymore because now Ian McDermott's emperor has been placed into the film. They've erased her. When you told me that, I got mad on her behalf. It's very frustrating because it's, it's so interesting to know those little tidbits and to know people who are sort of involved and very happy to like take whatever film roles you ask them to do would show up and perform on the day. And who cares if you're in the makeup and like performing as someone else, like give her her credit where credit is due. And now you can't see it unless you see like a screen cap from the old days or something. But you can see her in Zombies of Morishow, which I would recommend you watch. It's a good film. It's not very long. It's an hour 10, I think. Yeah, so. I mean, it's it's not the cleanest storytelling. There's a lot of stuff that no. doesn't quite make sense or doesn't get explained. But it also doesn't matter because it's just an enjoyable watch. It has another couple interesting uh, pop culture references, too, because the movie is from 1957. And yet the opening text panel that appears to set the stage for us references the Twilight Zone, two years before the show actually started, 
and also references The Walking Dead, a phrase that was not at all uncommon going back to films and, and pulp stories and everything in the 30s. But today, I don't think anybody thinks of that phrase in any way other than Kirkman's comic and TV show. So to see it turning up in earlier stuff is an interesting thing. And it is a far, far better film than the 2005 Fog. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at mblitovsky, that's mblitofsky, and Arnold at Dr. the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were The Fog, 1980, yes, The Fog, 2005, hell no, and Zombies of Moritau from 1957. Sure, why not? Ghouls in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com.